Good morning, church. You know that 2020, I got to thinking this week that it can really take a whole lot from us. And it has taken a whole lot from us, but it can't take what we just did uh, together from us. And it cannot take the idea that we can worship the King. That we can worship the King, whether it is in person here or whether we're with our tribe in our home or driving down the road. Emmanuel still gets our worship still gets our worship, and I think we can celebrate uh, that. If you've got a copy of Scripture this morning, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 2. Surprise! Uh, Matthew chapter 2, and I heard a story this week about a pastor and his wife that were coming home on on an afternoon, and uh, the pastor's wife came through the house and just fell onto the couch and just sighed with relief and just said, Oh my goodness, I am exhausted. The pastor looked at his wife with a look that only a husband can give her and goes, why? Uh, why? He said, do you realize that I have preached three times on Sunday, six Christmas Eve services, and you're exhausted? And she looked at him without cracking a smile and said, yeah, but I had to listen to them all. And that's worse. <laughs> That's worse. You know, some of you, I feel like that's kind of where you're at right now in Matthew chapter 2. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, we really have been diving into Matthew's account of this young boy Jesus on coming to earth. And we've been looking at the events that surround it. We've been looking at the ideas that it carries and the ideas of the gifts that these men named Magi have given. And, and our goal in it that we have said from the beginning is just to slow down in the story, to slow down in it. A lot of times we come to these familiar passages and we just breeze through them. We just kind of Bible read our plan through them and we don't take the moments to just let it soak into our soul. And that's what we've been doing over these last couple weeks. And we've been taking the time to really focus on this account from Matthew chapter 2 and making the distinction that it is not the same account as Luke gives us. It is not one big story that is mashed into a story and we throw out into our Christmas cards. It's a separate event. It comes after the Luke event, after the birth, and it's in a home in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. And now we're seeing these wise men. And we've saw some things about these wise men over the last couple weeks, and, and it's incredible to see that, number one, it just took them a while to get there. It took them a while. You didn't just hop into the Camry and head down the road in that moment. They had to gather their supplies, get their stuff together, hire their teams around them, and make the journey to see Jesus. But we also see that there, there weren't three of them. There was probably a bunch of them. How many? I don't know. 
I don't know how many there were, but it was enough to get an audience with King Herod. It was enough to head into town and automatically they knew that they were present. It was enough to know that they turned that little town upside down. And now they were coming to meet Jesus. And I love these wise men because they teach us a lot about ourselves. And they show us a lot about what our worship can look like, what our devotion can look like, and how we as people can begin to move towards giving our lives to Jesus. And we said that these guys, they weren't kings. In fact, they were king makers. They were spiritual advisors. They were these rulers that kings would look to to ratify laws. And one of their primary laws or one of their primary roles was that these guys were the guys, the magi, These were the guys that anointed kings. You know, we don't have anybody in our society today that we can kind of compare them to. I've been kind of thinking about how can we kind of compare who these wise men were in our society. They were more than a president. They were more than a religious leader. But then it hit me, what would happen is if we could take the Pope and if we could marry him with with the leader of the European Union into one person, that would be the level of power, the level of wealth, and the level of influence that these guys had for centuries and centuries. You know, kings didn't make laws without talking to them. Nobody became a king until they validated them. And in fact, they met Jehovah God back all the way 600 B.C. when this guy named Daniel stepped into their ranks and became their ruler. It's an amazing story how God wove this into history and, and these pagan astrologers met Jehovah God, the God of the Jews, and they received the scriptures from the Jews that were in the Babylon, and they received the prophecies from Daniel, and now because of their intellect, they had been reading the prophecies, they had been hearing that the coming of the king was coming, and now because they were so smart and wise, they knew that it was time, and the star rose. In fact, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 2. And I want you to see how they knew that a king was being born. Matthew 2 verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, I haven't said this yet. I want to save it till today. Believe that there, because if you were reading this, if you were reading it in Greek, you would see that this word king of the Jews, the word king is in all caps, which literally means that we're not talking about a little K king and some little K kingdom. We are talking about the all caps king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. You would have seen this in the original language. These guys come before Herod and is like, hey, little K king, where is the big K king? Because we've come not to worship you, but to worship him. And it says this, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So the star rises and they begin to follow it because it was spoken of in the Old Testament. And God directed them towards Jesus and they brought these gifts. We've been looking at these gifts over the last couple of weeks. We don't have time to really recap a lot of them. But the first one was gold and gold is the gift of a king. It is the medal of a king and they brought the gift of gold to a king to ratify or to anoint or to set apart Jesus as king. And when the Magi said it, listen, people listened. But they not only brought the gold of king to celebrate his sovereignty and the fact that he was Lord, but they brought, we looked at this last week, the gift of frankincense. They brought this incredibly aromatic 
frankincense that was actually the tool of the priest. They brought this tool of the priest to point out the fact that, that, yes, they were anointing Jesus as priest. They were showing that Jesus is going to be the fragrant offering to God and that Jesus is now our high priest. We saw this all through the book of Hebrews. We read it this week, just celebrating the fact that Jesus is my go-between. That's what priest means. He's the go-between between a holy God and a sinful Man, that's what frankincense was. And frankincense, it was a little bit of a strange gift, right? Why do you bring a newborn? Why do you bring a newborn? Some incense. You do it because you know what it means. The third gift, today's gift, it's incredibly strange. Today's gift is, if you look at frankincense and think it's strange, when you look at today's gift, from the outside looking in, it is a completely weird gift. Let me ask you this. Have you ever just gotten a weird gift? I mean, do you got one of those ants? You know what I'm talking about, right? If you got a big family, there's always one. There's always one person in the family that nobody else wants to give anybody anything, but they're the holdout, right? They're the one that is like, hey, no, 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 we're all going to go, and we're going to go to the flea market, and we're going to all pile a bunch of junk that nobody wants into something to give you for Christmas. We all have those people. I've gotten some weird gifts over my life. I've gotten some really strange gifts. And I'm not talking about the gag gift parties. I'm talking about people that really think this is an appropriate gift. And I'm talking even more so than the socks and underwear you got when you were a kid. Remember you used to get so mad? Why are you going to wrap up some socks and give them to me as a kid? But hey, as I become an adult, it's like, hey, that's a pretty good gift, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's needed in life. I'll take it every time. I did a poll this week uh, just because I got a lot of people out there, right? I was like, hey, what is the strangest gift you have ever gotten. And look, I got a lot of them. A lot of them I can't say from up here. I'm just going to be really honest with you that it would get me in a lot of trouble. But I, but I, but I wrote down a couple of them that I thought were, right, were, were worth saying. Number one gift was a previously used apple slicer with apple pieces already on it. That's just gross. Uh, number two, uh, one sock. Not a pair of socks, just one. Uh, I thought that was neat. Uh, number three, I thought this one was pretty offensive. A five-ounce crystal body rock deodorant. Listen, if somebody's giving you a five-ounce rock, you got to rub on yourself to make you smell better, you got a problem. Um, number four, I love this one. Number four weird gift was a toilet seat. <laughs> a toilet seat. Now listen, dudes, if you're giving her a toilet seat for Christmas, there's nothing that says love better than that, right? Uh, unless it's one of those new ones that glow in the dark. That can take care of a lot of problems at nighttime. Uh, here it is. Number five, a box of 350 fortune cookies. L- let me just, as a side note, if someone is worried about you to the point they need to give you 350 fortune cookies, you're in trouble. Uh, here's, and here's my favorite one. A stocking full of vacuum cleaner bags. Not a vacuum cleaner because that would be like almost cool. But a whole stocking full. Don't go home, dude. Listen, if this is you right now, don't do it because you're not going to have a home after Christmas if you give this to your wife. Look, those are weird, but at a glance, this morning's is probably the weirdest gift that's ever been given to a child. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen, when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place that the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and here's today's, 
myrrh. Myrrh. Now, listen, myrrh has an incredibly long history on this planet. All historians agree that myrrh goes back at least to 2,000 years prior to Christ being born. A couple of scholars even go farther than that, and they would attribute it all the way back to the 6th millennium B.C. But myrrh is like frankincense. It is a resin from a plant that would have hardened on the side of a trunk. They would have knocked it off, and after it was turned into powder or pieces for powder later, it was used throughout history for many, many, many different Different things. If you do a kind of study, a word study through the Bible, you'll see that myrrh is mentioned about 18 times in the Bible. 14 of them are in the Old Testament. Four of them are in the New Testament. And the original word for myrrh, and this is important, if you're reading the Bible in the Old Testament, the original language is Hebrew, right? And then the original word for, more, for myrrh is the word more. M-O-R. Now, if you're taking notes on a piece of paper, if you got Matthew 2 out, write that somewhere in the margins because you're going to need to know this. The word more is the original word. That is the, that is the Hebrew word for myrrh. So if you translate it, it is myrrh. Now, in the New Testament, Matthew right here is writing in Greek. He's writing in Greek right here in the New Testament. And the New Testament word, it's another language, the New Testament word for myrrh is the word smyrna. Smyrna, it ain't the Jonquil City right down the road, all right? It's a different deal, but it is a city, all right? It is a city. If you remember right in your Bible history, there was a city named Smyrna. There was a city named Smyrna. It was just north of Jerusalem. It was a port city. It is Ismar, Turkey, if you want to look it up this afternoon. It's the same city today. And this city was named after its chief export. The chief export of the city of Smyrna was what we call Myrrh. It's what we call myrrh. So you're going to see that there's a long history of myrrh. If you look at the Bible, there's about four different uses of myrrh in the Bible that I want to look at real fast. Number one, biblically speaking, myrrh was a beauty treatment. It was a beauty treatment. Now, some of you are like, now you're speaking my language, all right? It was a beauty treatment. In fact, it was the number one kind of spa moment in the whole Bible. If you've ever studied the story of Esther, the story of Esther coming before the king, you would have seen in Esther chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for women. For some of you are like, hallelujah, send me to that spa, right? Six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with the perfumes and the cosmetics. So evidently, when you read the story, you'll see that myrrh did something to the skin. You could say it was the ancient Botox of the day, I guess you could say, in ancient land. They would bathe in it. They would use it as an anointment for their skin. And it helped these so-called almost queens go into the king with the most youthful, exuberant skin ever. All right, It was a beauty treatment, but number two, it was also used as an expensive perfume. It was used as an incredibly expensive perfume. If you start looking through the Old Testament, you'll see it. First in Psalm 45, you'll see that the king's garments were scented with myrrh and with aloe. If you read in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 7, you'll see the seductress lady that is tempting the young man that is in that chapter. And the seductress lady says that I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. And yes, it's talking about what you're thinking it's talking about. In Song of Solomon, chapter 3, to go even farther, 
Song of Solomon chapter 3, we see it again. I'm not going to give you what it says about it in chapter 4 and 5. You're going to have to read that on your own at another time. But in Song of Solomon 3, we see Solomon looking towards his fiancée. And listen to, what she's, listen to what he says. He says about this fiancée. He says, look at this fiancée who is coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh. So we see that myrrh was this expensive perfume in the ancient history. And, and, and you know, that you didn't bathe quite as much as today, so I'm sure it was greatly useful in covering up the stench of the day. But, but myrrh, number three, it was a painkiller. It was a painkiller throughout history. And actually, even today, there are some places that still use myrrh with its painkilling abilities. It was a, an acetaminophen, if you would, a Tylenol or an Advil. And something about it had the ability to reduce swelling and to kill pain. To kill pain, to help with pain. And this is incredible because we see this use kind of dip into the New Testament a little bit. I don't know why I've never put this together, but Jesus, when he was on the cross... If you'll remember right, when Jesus was on the cross, the Roman authorities, at the moment of his excruciating death, on this tool made by the Romans to cause the most pain possible, in Mark chapter 15, we see that Jesus, check this out, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. But he did not take it, and they crucified him. Now, why did they offer it? Because the Romans wanted to deaden the pain just long enough not to put him into shock so that he would die faster. They wanted him to go through more and more and last longer on the cross. But it's almost as if Jesus was just like, no, 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 I'll take the pain because I'm becoming sin on their behalf. So we see this in the Old Testament. We see that he became sin for us. And this myrrh, catch this, is the same substance. That these magi from the east that knew the scriptures were laying at the feet of Jesus. Now, all of those uses are important, but those are not the uses that our text is pointing to. See, there's a fourth use of myrrh, and by the first century, this fourth use was the, it was actually the, the, the number one use for myrrh. And, and this is the one that our text is pointing to, and myrrh was used to care for dead bodies. Now, I know that's a little bit grotesque. I know it is, but I want you to see this, because this is what makes it so odd that these wise men would bring this substance that was used to treat dead bodies to this young child. Are you catching kind of the awkwardness of the moment of what's going on? You could say that, a, that, that the myrrh was a preservative of the dead, I guess you would. According to this guy named Herodias, and I've mentioned him just about every week, by the way, on purpose because I wanted a, a theme of history through this whole kind of this whole mini series that we're doing. Herodias, if you don't know who Herodias is, or, or, or if you're just not a history nerd, you probably don't. Herodias is the father of modern day history. He's the one that kind of laid the groundwork of how we even today treat history by primary and secondary sources. And Herodias in 450 B.C. was a Greek historian that wrote the history of kind of that side of the world or modern world as he would have called it. And Herodias said, and I quote, myrrh was primarily used for the preparation of the dead. 
preparation of the dead. Now, the Egyptians, if you watch the History Channel, you'll remember almost every time they open up some new tomb and they run whatever those chemical tests are, they find hints of myrrh because the Egyptians used it as an embalming fluid. But the Jews used it a little bit differently. And these are the people that we're dealing with. The Jews, after someone would have died, they would have wrapped the body in cloths of script, uh, or in these strips of cloth, and then they would have taken myrrh and they would have anointed, they would have kind of encased the dead body of the person. This is where we see it in the Gospels again, if you remember right, after the crucifixion, right? Jesus goes to the tomb, and what happens? John chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. He came and took the body away. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of it. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in the strips of linen. And this, it says, was in accordance with the Jewish burial Customs. Now, why would you wrap a dead body in strips of fabric wrapped in myrrh? I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's to help with the decaying process. They didn't have what we have today. And it was, the, it was to honor the dead. It was to say that they were worth this idea that we were taking something worthy to them. So literally, I know this is hard for us to understand. But if you were a Jew in first century Palestine and someone said the word myrrh to you, every Everyone knew primarily it was a death spice. Now let that sink in just for a minute. Let that sink into the story because I know what you're thinking. You're like, Matt, thanks for the history lesson. (laughs) Thanks for the history of myrrh. I'll never be the same, right? I know it's what you're thinking. But here's what I want you to do. I want us to kind of encase that with why the Magi brought it to Jesus because there's an incredible scarlet thread that goes from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible that deals with myrrh. There's an incredible grand narrative of God that we're seeing and his sovereignty right here happens when this boy Jesus has been born and now he's been given the gift of the death spice. Let me give you a couple of walkaways that will clear it up. Number one is this. The substance of myrrh that is associated with Jesus' birth is also associated with Jesus' death. We've briefly seen this, right? It was given to him at his birth. It was offered to him at his crucifixion. And then it was used at his burial. But it would be even more meaningful if you knew the Jewish customs. If you were a Jewish rabbi, if you were a Jewish priest, and if you knew the Old Testament, how they knew the Old Testament, you would see that myrrh is incredibly symbolic. You say, Matt, what are you talking about? I love it when you ask questions of where we're going to go next, because it really does help me. Check this out. Genesis chapter 22. You don't have to go there. Genesis chapter 22 is Abraham. He's the founder of the Jews, right? He's the father of the Jews. You're going to like this if you love the Bible. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Remember this? He was asked to take him to the place of sacrifice, take him to the mountain of sacrifice. Now, what was the mountain's name that Abraham was asked to take Isaac to? It was Mount Moriah. 
Mount Moriah. Now, if you were paying attention earlier, maybe you wrote this little word over in your column over there. The Hebrew word for myrrh is the word mor. Catch this. Mount Mor, M-O-R-I-A-H. What does that mean? Catch this. The father Abraham was asked to take the son Isaac to the mountain of myrrh. To the mountain of myrrh. Is this beginning to make a little bit of sense in Bible history for you? Where did this happen? This happened on the mountain of myrrh, Mount Moriah. Now, where is Mount Moriah? For those of you that Bible history is not your jam, let me tell you where it is. Mount Moriah became the first place of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple. What happened at Solomon's temple? It was the place that day after day, year after year, millennial after millennial, there was a sacrifice made of a lamb to cover the sins of all the people, right? It's to cover the people on Mount Moriah. Now, what did Mount Moriah become in the New Testament? It is Jerusalem. Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. It is the temple mount in Jerusalem. Now, what happened in Jerusalem? It is where the temple was built. It is where the sacrifices were being made. It's where for millennial people made a journey to come to the day of atonement because the sacrifice was being made. The lamb was being slain. The priest, the high priest, was making the sacrifice at Mount Moriah, which is now Jerusalem, which is now the temple. What happened when this guy named Jesus came along? This guy named Jesus came along and became sin on our behalf and was crucified literally just blocks from Mount Moriah. Now, what happened when Jesus was crucified? What happened at Mount Moriah when Jesus was crucified was the temple curtain that separated the Holy of Holies God with the sinful man was torn from the top to the bottom. And literally now, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have access to the king. Why? Because all the way back in Mount Moriah, God gave us this thread that runs all the way to Jesus. All the way to Jesus. Now, this doesn't excite you, but this excites me because I'm totally into this Bible thing. And this is incredible because, listen, if you were an ancient Hebrew rabbi, when you heard of myrrh, the gift of this magi, your mind would have automatically connected the Father God sacrificing a son. The Father, Abraham, sacrificing a son. And now, now we have the Father God sacrificing Jesus on our behalf. Ring a bell, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let me say it again. The Father God sacrificed the son Jesus on our behalf. And listen, that's good news. That's good news for you, and that's good news for me. That's good news for all of us. Now look, when we look at this event, we get to see it in the rearview mirror. Things are always clearer in the rearview mirror. But I want you to think about this. What if you were Mary and Joseph? (laughs) What if you were Mary and Joseph? Remember, they were good Jews. They knew the first five books of the Bible. They knew what myrrh stood for. 
What if you were Mary and Joseph? Go with me in my sanctified imagination just for a minute. It's quiet. Dinner's done, right? We're down. Everybody's good. Maybe little Jesus is playing with some blocks on the floor, and somebody knocks on the door, and you're like, who is at our house? Who's at our house? They walk up to the door. They open the door, and there's hundred people standing on the front lawn, and a couple of guys in some crazy suits on your front porch. I don't know if there was a front porch. In my mind, it just makes sense that there's this front porch, and all of a sudden, Jesus walks out. He's like, Ma, what's going on? I don't know if you called her Ma, but it works out for Mary. It's kind of short for that. He walks onto the front, and these guys, these magi, fall on their faces and begin to worship Jesus. And you know they're like, what is going on right here? And they're like, wait a minute. These are magi. These are powerful people. They don't bow to anybody. You notice they never bowed to Herod. They never bowed even to this, this. They never bowed to King Nero. Nero was shaking. Roman history tells us that when they met, when the Magi met Nero later on, that he literally shook. They're bowing to King Jesus. And what do they do? They give him some gold. And Mary's like, oh my, oh my, some gold. We'll take the gold. Give us the gold. That's an incredible gift. We'll take gold. Never turn down gold. It's just a principle in life that I have as well. Don't turn it down. Secondly, they break out the frankincense. They're like, well, that's a little bit weird, but we'll go with it. We'll go with the frankincense. We can kind of see maybe where this is going. He's a, he's a holy kid. Maybe he'll grow up to be a priest one day. Maybe he's that kind of kid. He's, okay, I got this. But then when the box of myrrh hit the floor in front of him, you know this is when it got real for Mary. She's like, oh, no, you didn't. No, no, no. That's my baby. Why? Because none of us look at our babies and think death. All we think about our babies is we think life and what's ahead of them and what's going to happen in them. And you know this got to them a little bit. You know it had to. I'm just kind of reading into the text, but it's just normal, right? Not only did this get to them, but you know this brought them back to the announcements that happened earlier. What announcements? What about when the Mary had the angel appear to her? In Luke chapter 1, when the angel said, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give them the throne of his father David. That's why he got the gold right there. You're like, okay, Mary's like, I'm on it. Yep, that's incredible. What about when the shepherds came and visited him later on? The shepherds came in Luke chapter 2, and when all who heard it, they were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. What did they say? The shepherds just basically told her, today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Messiah, and he is Lord. And remember in verse 19, it says that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She's, you know that she's remembering this moment going, oh, no, 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 this is going to be the Lord. This is going to be a kingdom maker. This is going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know they thought back to when Simeon. Bless this child in the temple. Remember that old priest Simeon that was so faithful to God? In Luke chapter 2, verse 29, it says, Sovereign Lord, you have promised. You may now dismiss your servant, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You know that when Mary's thinking about this moment, she's going, no, no, no. This guy's the king, and this guy is Lord, and this guy's going to be salvation for everybody. But how amazing is it at this moment, it got really real for Mary and Joseph and the Magi and everybody else, that this boy, Jesus, was going to be the sacrifice for sins. How? By going to the place that myrrh meant the most. Death. Death. Listen, we're connecting the dots here. 
This is not just some story that just popped up. And obviously, you know this. You're not just saved by the birth of Jesus. You're not saved just by the life of Jesus. You are saved because of the sacrificial death and resurrection of our King, Savior, and Lord, King Jesus. And that's why we're seeing that the myrrh connected his birth with his death. But number two, walk away, I want to show you real quick, is that, that Jesus is the only baby that has ever been born with the express purpose to die. To die. Let that one sink in just for a minute. And I know this is so anti-Christmas. I mean, I got my Christmas shirt on, for goodness sakes. But this is so anti-Christmas right here, right? But I just want you to feel it. That when you see the manger and the angels and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and later on the magi and later on the gifts and this boy Jesus. I want you to see this principle. I want this principle to sear into your soul. Let us never see the crib without the cross. Let us never see the crib without the cross. Why? Because so many of us are good at celebrating the Christmas Jesus. The sweet baby Jesus, right? But we're not really good at celebrating the crucified Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus. The cross is the goal of the manger. The purpose of the crib is the cross. This is important. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, this was not plan B. It wasn't like God was in heaven going, oh man, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do with the earth now? No, from the beginning of time, God had planned to sacrifice his son Jesus for you and for me. This is why Revelation 13.8 says literally that the lamb Jesus was the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. This was not a plan that God just kind of had to scratch the other plan one day because we sinned from the beginning of mankind. God knew this was going to happen. Why? Because the shadow of the cross went all the way back to the birth of Jesus. All the way back. And it went all the way back to Mount Moriah thought of a painting this week, and I had to look it up because I wasn't that great in art appreciation. thought of a painting this week, and it was, it was in the 1870s by this guy named Holman Hunt. Holman Hunt. I'm not that smart. I had to look it up. Um, and, and I want you to see this painting because it just so encompasses this point that I'm making right here. It's Jesus. He's working in his father's wood shop. He's tired, and he's just put his saw down. I had to look that up, too. I didn't know that, but those smart people do. And he had to put his saw down, and he's stretching his arms. Why? Because there was no, like, Ryobis back then. You had to, like, do it with, like, all manpower back then. He put his saw down. He's stretching his arms out. And look down in the corner. You've got his mom, Mary, down in the corner, and she's opened a box up. She's opened this box up, and what is in the box? The gift of the Magi. You've got gold, and you've got frankincense, and, and the author wrote this. I didn't come up with this. You've got all the gifts of the Magi that helped them live throughout history. But here's what I want you to notice the most about this. I love the gift of the Magi. I love the fact that Mary's there. I love the fact that, that Jesus is in the forefront. But right here, the sun is shining straight through Jesus, and look at the back wall. The sun is casting a shadow on Jesus' life, which is in the shape of the cross. It's the shadow of the cross. This is the point of the myrrh. The point of the myrrh is saying this to you and to me. The magi are bringing this myrrh and they're saying this baby's life is pointed to the cross. It's pointed to the cross of Jesus. And I don't know how much of the story that Mary and Joseph know. I don't know that. But what I do know is that the moment 
that the myrrh hit the ground, things got really real for them, and it demanded a response from them. It demanded a response. You say, Matt, what are you talking about demanding a response? We see a response in Scripture, and here's how I want to land this whole deal. My question is this. Have you ever met Jesus in a way that it demanded a response? Or has it just been this head knowledge that you've been operating in your whole life. This moment is incredibly significant right here. And we see that Jesus is our king and Jesus is our go-between and Jesus is our sacrifice. And it demanded a response. Look at verse 10. It tells us the response. I love how the Magi responded because this is how I should respond and how you should respond. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It says two things happened. It just says that there were more than just a smirk or more than just just a, hmm, that's nice. It was more like they were fundamentally changed when they first knew exactly who Jesus was. And here's the thing. When Jesus makes sense for you and makes sense for me, nobody has to beg us to do these two things. Here they are. When you meet Jesus, two things happen. Number one, you rejoice. You rejoice. Right? Joy to the world. They wrote a song about it. The Lord has come. This is the Christmas message. We rejoice, but number two, we worship. We worship. And I'm not talking about a, eh, okay, worship. I'm talking about we prostrate. That's literally what the word right here. In verse 11, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They bowed down in worship. I'm not going to bore you with the word there, but the word worship literally has the connotation that they got on their bellies, face on to the ground out of a reverent respect for who they were in front of. Now, remember these guys. We talked about them this whole series. They were kingmakers, and they bowed to no one. They were rich. They had everything. But what happened? What happened right here? Their status meant nothing to them in this moment because they met the true king. They met the true high priest. And they met the sacrifice for their sins. So in all their garb, you've seen it. You've been to a Christmas pageant. They, in all their garb, they got down on the ground in front of all their servants, I might add. They didn't care who was around them. They didn't care what culture was telling them to do. And they worshiped. They worshiped. Yes, they gave their stuff, all right? They gave their stuff. And it was nice stuff. It was meaningful stuff. It meant something. But what mattered most, first of all, they gave their worship. They gave their worship. Many scholars say that the fourth gift the Magi gave was the gift of their worship, the most important gift. Let me ask you this this morning. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? That from the beginning of time has been set apart to be the sacrifice for your sins. Not only to be the sacrifice, but to stand in the gap for your life. But not only to stand in the gap for your life, to be your king. The Magi did. And it changed them. Do you need to meet Jesus today? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you have just submitted your life and said, Lord Jesus, I, I'm a sinner. And I know that I can't do this on my own. But I need you. 
And I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to come into my life. And I need you to be my Lord. Has there ever been a point in your life where you've done that? Because if not, can I just tell you that it can be right now. If you recognize him as king, and you see him as your go-between high priest and your savior, you can ask him to be your Lord. And he'll come into your life. This whole time we've been talking about in this message series, this thread that goes all the way through the Bible, the thread is Jesus. And he wants to be in your life. Do you need to give your life to Jesus right now? You can just do it by saying, Lord, I'm yours. Come into my life. Listen, if that's you, every week we talk about our next steps text. It's the invitation of the pandemic. If you'll just text that and say, hey, I need Jesus. Somebody right now, today or tomorrow at latest, will reach out to you and say, hey, let's talk about this. What this can mean for you. Some of you just gave your life to Jesus right now. And we want to know about it. We want to celebrate it with you. Some of you, you need to take your next step in baptism and join this church. You can do all that on that text. But here's what I want to say. Some of you, you know Jesus. But here's my question to you. Are you rejoicing? And are you worshiping? Or have you let this whole deal this year just get to you and drag you down? This morning, we're going to close a little differently. And this whole series and tying all this together towards Christ, we've been, we've been looking at these gifts. And there's one thing that I didn't mention about myrrh. It's incredibly significant that myrrh was the, it was the resin that it smelt its best at the moment it was crushed. Ring a bell, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. You know, these gifts the Magi gave were meaningful. They meant something. They set a tone for who Jesus was and what he did. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because in New Testament land, this is, this is one of the most meaningful things that we can do to celebrate who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You're a believer in the room if you've given your life to Jesus if you're at home even we want to celebrate this moment with you so Matt what is the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper is is not the literal body and blood of Jesus it is a significant moment for us to have a symbol of the body and the, the broken body and the blood of Christ that was shed for us as our sacrifice as he went to the place of myrrh right but he didn't stay there because he rose and today we're going to celebrate this. In fact, Matthew 26 is Jesus talking. He says while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup. And when he gave thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine now on until the day comes when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a time where believers, listen, if you're not a believer, this is not for you. I don't want to be brash, but I just want to say this is for the family. This is for the family. But if you're a believer in Jesus, not denominational, but if you've given your life to Jesus, today we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Just a moment, these guys are going to come. They're going to play over us. They're going to worship with us. And when you and your heart are ready to take the body and then to take the juice today as a signifying moment that, Christ, you are mine and you have done this for me. 
I want you to do this on your own in your moment. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves. Tells us to, to see where this fits in our hearts. So during these next moments of just, just prayer and worship together, I'm going to ask you on your own terms to rip the top off, take the body. Rip the bottom off, take the juice. And let's celebrate the fact that Jesus is our king. He is our priest. And he is our sacrifice. There is no better gifts of Christmas. Lord Jesus, today, as we walk into this moment, Lord Jesus, of celebrating you, God, I pray that as we take these elements, God, the, the symbols of your broken body and blood would be seared into our soul today. And that when we see the cross, or the crib, we see the cross. Lord Jesus, as we take these and then as we stand afterwards and worship you as our king, God, let us rejoice and worship what you have done for us. It's in your name we pray.